Hi, welcome to the Vine Church podcast. Today we're lucky enough to have Pastor Aaron Dowd share with us. Enjoy. Click on that and on there, with all the scriptures, the quotes, uh, the video clips, the links, all the announcements, um, the Vine news, everything's on that just now, okay? Um, if your location services is not on, all you need to do is type in Dunfermline. Um, and uh, we, we will come up. Okay, so you can use that. You can add notes. You can export all your notes onto your own um, notepad. Uh, you can share it. You can save it. You can do whatever you want with it. Now, some of you prefer a pencil and paper, son. Never crashes. The most reliable computer in the whole world. Pencil and paper. Can't beat it. This fancy phone business. Well, you can get a sheet and a pencil and paper. Okay, if anyone's not got the... The, the, the uh, worksheet for today, just pop your hand up, unless Michael's done that already. So there is, there is a worksheet. But do you know that, um, if you could put the timer on for me, please, Rana, so I don't speak for three hours, that would not be a blessing. The um, Scots have a stereotype of being thrifty. That's a good word. Try and say that without spraying. Thrifty. And um, this can be, uh, this means, thrifty means careful with money miserly or penny-pinching. It's rather unfair. I wonder if there's any evidence for that. I mean, I wonder if there's any statistical analysis being done of the Scots that prove that, or if, I don't know how that actually came to be. But anyway, they say, what's the difference between a tightrope and a Scotsman? Well, a tightrope sometimes gives. I know, it's, it's, it's so nasty. I don't know how we got that reputation. It's terrible. You know, Donald was so mean that when his suit needed cleaned, he donated it to the charity shop, and then he bought it back when he had cleaned and pressed it. That's genius, eh? Might, might be thrifty, but they're genius as well. Now, a Scotsman, an Englishman, and an Australian, they went into a bar, and they just started on a new round of drinks when a fly landed into each one of their beers. So the Englishman took out a Swiss army knife and removed the fly with the blade. The Australian, he blew on the froth and the fly cleared with the froth. The Scotsman, he lifted the fly up by its wings. He held it over the glass and he said, go on, spit it out, you wee devil, he growled. It's not fair, is it? Okay, we'll, we'll try this. If we could uh, pop to the next slide, slide number two, please. We'll see if we can get this wee device working. Okay. This is from... The New Republic website, and it was written by Jordan Michael Smith on the 22nd of September 2014. It says, start giving your money and time away. New research shows you'll be happier for it. Americans who describe themselves as very happy volunteer an average of 5.8 hours per month. Those who are unhappy, 0.6 hours per month. This is just one of the findings of The Paradox of Generosity. It's a new book by sociologists Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson presenting the findings of the Science of Generosity Initiative at Notre Dame. Now, the result is among the most comprehensive of studies of Americans' giving habits ever conducted. So we need some cultural interpretation for Scotland. But other findings include lower depression rates among Americans who donate more than 10% of their incomes. 
And giving away money isn't the only way to reap the psychological rewards of generosity. Americans who are giving in relationships, being emotionally available and hospitable are much more likely to be in excellent health, 48%, than those who are not, 31%. The interviewer asked, and yet the book argues that generosity has to be practiced consistently to offer rewards to the giver. It can't just be a single act of giving, blood, or something like that. Christian Smith, the author of the book, says, yes, it has to be a practice. And if you're filling the blanks on your sheet, I believe that is one of the blanks. Clara, could you bring my orange juice up, please, okay? It has to be a practice. It has to be something that is sustained over time. Thank you. Um, That people engage with regularly. One-off things just don't affect us that much. Whereas things that we repeat, things that are sustained in our bodily behaviors and in our minds have tremendous effects on us. The empirical evidence was very clear. Nothing we tested where you do it just one time has an effect. We know that, don't we? But all the things that you have to sustain over time have that effect. The next question was, if giving is good for you, why aren't more people generous? And Christian Smith answers, well, mostly because what's going on in their heads. Most people could be more generous. They think they don't have the money or the time, but they could be more generous. I think people are afraid, blank on your sheets, afraid. They don't realize that it's good for them, that it would benefit them, and not just other people. They're afraid that it would be a loss, that if they gave money away or devoted their time, they would be losing something. So part of it is just ignorance. Part of it is fear and insecurity. And one of the points of publishing the book is to help people step out of the fear and step into a better place. The next question was, some of the people in your book who you chronicle and classify as ungenerous seem to be close with their spouse or child. Isn't that a form of generosity? He answers, they might be helping each other in a very limited sense. And that's a good thing, of course, when people help their immediate nuclear family. But the dynamics of generosity are such that people who are learning to be generous increasingly expand. Blank on your sheet, expand their circle to people beyond their most comfortable or the most intimate, and there is a helping of the other, and not just one's own tribe, so to speak. That's an important threshold to cross in being a generous person. Now, Mahatma Gandhi, India's prime minister, looked at Christianity, and this is what he came to the, the uh, conclusion when he looked at Christianity, and this is, in your, uh, this is on your sheets, this is in your Bible app event, and he, he said this, if all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christian. Wow. Dallas Willard, he wrote this in his book, Revolution of Character, again on your sheets. This aching world is waiting for the people explicitly identified with Christ to be, through and through, the people he intends them 
to be. The world is waiting for us to be the people that God intends us to be. Can you imagine a world saturated with millions of radically generous people? Can you imagine Scotland saturated with thousands and hundreds of thousands of people living a radically generous life? Can you imagine the impact of our revolution of generosity where the people of God are becoming the people of God that he intended us to be? Do you think our society would be any different? Well, Barna Research has confirmed that Christians are acting more and more like the rest of culture. And there is little discernible difference between believers and non-believers. This is from research and mostly American. This includes the books that they read, the issues they worry about, to how they use their money. Very little difference between Christians and non-Christians. And in their annual report, The State of Church Giving, John and Sylvia Ronsville explain, this is on your sheets. Giving has not kept up with income. In 1933, in the depth of the Great Depression, per capita giving was 3.2%. In 1995, it was still 3%. By 2004, when Americans were 555% richer after taxes and inflation. Wow, 555% richer What has happened to all that extra money? Where is it all gone? Well, you guessed it. It's just continued to be spent on self. Because after taxes and inflation in the Great Depression, Protestants were giving 2.5% of their income to churches. And what this shows is that as we, as a Western culture, have grown richer, we've not in general become more uh, generous. The more we receive, the more in general, we spend. The higher our uh, living uh, uh, level of uh, living becomes as our income increases. We spend more and more on ourselves as as opposed to giving more away. Generous people then, according to studies, are more the exception than the rule. Now, By mistake, Sandy, he put a 50 pence coin by accident instead of a 5 pence coin onto the collection plate at church. And despite weeks of pleading with the minister to get it back, the minister refused to give him his 50 pence back. So for the next nine weeks, Sandy decided when he would pass the plate, he would pass it each week saying, season ticket. The Bible, though, is completely radical. That's nothing to do with my father-in-law and the joke section where I found he was actually called Sandy. uh, Actually, my father-in-law, Sandy, is one of the most generous people I know. And in fact, probably fewer people have taught me more about generosity than Sandy and Rosie, my parents-in-law. Now, the Bible is completely radical in its teaching on possessions and generosity. The Bible reminds us again and again that if God is not first, blank on your sheet, first in the use of our money, he is not first in our lives. If God is not first 
wow, this is, is, this, is this painful, by the way? <laughs> is it a bit sore? Is it a bit uncomfortable? Well, this is the Bible, folks. This is Jesus Christ and his radical teaching. It's why it's so radical. But it reminds us, if our use of money um, is not first, God is not first. Our use of possessions, you see, demonstrates materially our spiritual status. Let me repeat that. Our use of possessions demonstrates our spiritual status. Is it possible that your bank statements are a better measure of your spiritual condition than how many verses you have highlighted in your paper or your version Bible app? If you just go back one, girls, please. Go back to the, go back a slide. Oh, in fact, no, you're absolutely spot on. Just keep that up. Sorry. Yeah, just listen to the kids. Let them leave them. Let them do it. Do their stuff. They're on the ball. Okay. Well, did you know? Wow. Isn't that, isn't that an incredible truth? Did you know that the Bible is saturated with teaching on possessions? 17 of the 38 parables of Jesus are about possessions. In terms of number of verses on possessions, this topic is mentioned in the Bible more than any other. Blanks on your sheets. Three times more than love. How many sermons have we heard on love? Well, what is mentioned three times more than love is possessions. Seven times more than prayer. And even eight times more than belief. The Bible focuses on possessions. In fact, 15% of Bible verses, 2,172, I stayed up to 3 a.m. counting them all, because <laughs> that's what I do on Saturday nights. No, I never. I, uh, I got it from a clever man. 2,172 verses deal with possessions, including treasures hidden in a field, pearls, talents, pounds, stables, etc., now, why do you think God put so much in the Bible about possessions? Next slide, please. Probably because he knew how much we would struggle with possessions. How many of you think the Bible teaches that money is the root cause of all evil? Hands up if you think the Bible teaches that money is the root cause of evil. Just, just show your hands. Just, that's it. Okay. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root cause of all evil because money is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. What the Bible actually teaches is the love of money is the root cause of all evil. Money is not the problem. It's our hearts. Now, after discovering that they had won 15 million pounds in the lottery, Mr. and Mrs. McFlannel sat down to discuss their future. And Mrs. McFlannel announced... After 20 years of washing other people's stairs, I can finally throw away that old scrubbing brush at last. And her husband agreed with a big smile. Of course you can, Hen. We can easily afford to buy you new ones now. But we must consider from the Bible how our faith and finances are related. Are they related? Is there any link? Can we have a healthy faith? And unhealthy stewardship. Is that possible? Can a treasure be in this world and our hearts be totally on God? Well, John Wesley, 
he exhorted, encouraged his parishioners, I like that word, parishioners, <laughs> his followers, his, his, his church. Next slide, please. Gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. He went on to say, because all that we have is given us by God. That's the first incredible revelation. Everything you have is given by God. There's no stewardship without that understanding. You, you say, yeah, your money is not your own because the ability to earn that money came from God and he could remove it in a second. So everything we have, there's no understanding of stewardship uh, biblically unless we first understand that everything we have comes from God. John Wesley, all that we have, the breath, the finance, the time, the energy, all that we have is given us by God. And since we have been entrusted with these possessions, we are responsible to use them in ways that bring him glory. This is what Donald Hinn says. It's on your sheets again. Next slide, please. People are not naturally disposed to giving, yet the life that we all prize, filled with joy and spiritual depth, is closely tied to giving generously and with thankful hearts. Next slide, please. The life that we all prize is closely tied to giving generously and with thankful hearts. You see, God's desire for us and for you is to become more like Jesus from the inside out. His desire is for you to be changed or conformed, blank on your sheet, conformed, conformed into Christ's image. This is the purpose of God for your life. This is God's purpose for us. It's new creation, recreation, being changed and transformed through our life, which is a whole lifetime pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ until we go to him and we will be like him. We will become fully like him. But our God's desire is that our, through our life, through our journey, through our experience, we're becoming more and more changed into the image in which we were first made. We were originally made in God's image. And then we fell short of that glory of that image. But Christ came that we can be recreated back into the glory of that image. And he doesn't do it instantly the moment we say that prayer. That's when the journey begins. But the process continues to go through our whole Christian life. And the change of our character is a process of Christ being formed in us. As we turn away from sin. Because the root of sin is me and selfishness. Someone said, what is, is at the center of sin is the letter I. And it's as we turn away from I and selfishness that we become uh, closer conformed into his image. This is what Paul says of the church in Galatians in 4.19. Galatians 4.19. This is what he says. My little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what? What was he in the anguish of childbirth? I.e., what is a huge priority for Paul? i.e. what is a huge priority for God, i.e. what was it that consumed Paul's desire for them to be blessed? How did Paul pray for them? How did Paul pray for the believers that they would be blessed, that they would be happy, that they would be joyful? These were all secondary to the ultimate first uh, priority of Paul. He says, until Christ is formed in you. He was in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed formed in you. God's desire 
is that Christ be formed in you and that you're transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Mark Allen Powell puts it this way. Next slide, please. This is on your sheets. The Bible teaches that generosity is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. The way to become generous people then involves not quenching God's Spirit, but allowing the transforming work of Christ to have its full effect in shaping us to be the people of God that he wants us to be. Mark Allen Powell, giving to God. Generosity is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. And if we're ever to become a generous people, it's not about just adhering. It's not just about responding. It's not just about trying to alleviate our guilt. It's none of that. It's about becoming more and more like him. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit deep in our hearts. And the, the fruit of that is natural. The fruit, see, generosity is something that should come naturally from us as we are changed more and more and more by the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is generosity or kindness. Barna describes transformation this way on your sheets. It's a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship with God and one another. Our vision, really, which we'll be talking about more in the months ahead, but this is our vision. It's a revolution that changes people's ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits, and generosity. You see, McDonald was awarded £10,000 for injuries after a traffic accident, and his wife got £2,000. And a friend asked how badly injured his, his wife actually was in the accident. McDonald replied, oh, she wasn't injured at all, but I had the presence of mind to kick her in the shins before the police arrived. Our ultimate goal is to be transformed more and more to become like Jesus in character and lifestyle. This is the goal of discipleship. This is the goal of what it means to be a disciple or a learner of Jesus. The ultimate goal is to become like him, to be transformed, to be changed, to become more like him. And that includes his generosity. That means that our attitudes, our beliefs, and behaviors align with his. They become like that of Jesus Christ. We're becoming more of a peaceful person. We're becoming more of a loving person if we're not quenching the Holy Spirit. And that's why our lifestyle does matter because we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can stagnate the growth. We can stop growing and we can become level. We can become hard. We can become bitter. We can become ungenerous. We can become unkind if we stifle and, and hinder the Holy Spirit. But a generosity revolution that God wants to happen happens through inward transformation of the, the people of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, generosity cannot happen by anyone beating you over the head. It cannot come through any guilt trip. It cannot come by anyone saying, oh, we need you to give our givings down. You know, you maybe respond for one-off, but as we've read in the studies that one-off things don't have any result. 
the, 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 the transformation, the revolution happens as we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit inwardly to come and changed into his character. This is what 1 Peter 4.10 says. Next slide, please. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied uh, of God's varied grace. I want to ask you a question. Have you received a gift? It says, as each has received a gift. That includes you. What is the gift that you have received? Because each one of us has a gift. You know what those gifts are? The skills, the ability, the talents that you have are a gift from God that were given to you. They belong to him for his glory, for his fame. Spiritual gifts are given. You know, the time that you have is a gift. Each one of us has been allocated a number of days. That is a gift. Each one of us has talents, skills, abilities. That is a gift that God wants us to use. And money. We think our money is ours, but it comes from God. Everything we have belongs to God. Because the ability to earn wealth comes from Him. And it could be removed at any time. But guess what? Well, that gift is not to be hidden. It's not to be hidden under a table. It's not to be stored away. It's not to be enjoyed by ourselves. What does the verse say? It says, use it. As each of you has received a gift, use it. God's intention is the gifts are used. Your time, your talent, your treasure, and how is it to be used? On self? What does it say? It says, use it to serve one another. It's given to give away. We are to be a stream that flows, that as we receive, that we give of our time, of our talents, of our treasure, and even statistical analysis and study has proven that those that live like this are happier, they're healthier because we're living as God has made us in his image, as he intended us to be. To be. We're, we're to use it to serve one another. It says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we're to live, giving, to serve one another as stewards. What is a steward? What does it mean to be a steward? Because we are stewards of God's grace. A steward, very simply, is a manager of the household. As a manager, Okay. In ancient times. The word stewardship, it comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which means somebody who manages a household. He doesn't own the household, but he does manage it, and there's a big difference. Now, Joseph's a great example. In Genesis 39, 4, it says, he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So, Joseph's a great example of a manager or a steward. He was to manage the household, make wise decisions. He was expected not to waste resources. And they were trusted with everything from ensuring the floors were clean to the finances to the reputation of the household. So Christian stewardship is the idea that God is the owner of everything. Everything we have is owned by God. God is the owner of all creation. And all that we have has been given to us And we have the privilege and the responsibility to manage what he gave to us. And he expects us to use our gifts of time, our talents, our money, our finance, to manage his household well 
and ultimately we are accountable to him for what we do with what he has entrusted us. And we're going to unpack that next week. We're going to get into the teaching and the parables of Jesus, especially the, the teaching of the judgment of believers and how that should radically impact how we live as stewards here and now. And the judgment of believers is not something to be feared, but it is something that should motivate and transform and compel how we live our life. God has given us gifts of time, talents, treasure to manage his household. Now, if we examine the parables in the language of Jesus, Jesus emphasizes the call to fruitfulness, and we're going to unpack this over the next two or three weeks. He calls his people to be fruitful for the kingdom's sake because we're not owners but we have been entrusted with the resources and the care of everything. The care of creation, the use of our gifts and talents and money and time, and even the gospel is a gift that God wants us to use and to give away. Paul says, I'm a debtor. How can you be a debtor to the gospel? How can you be a debtor? Well, if I go and I give uh, Clara, say, Clara, there's 500 pounds. I want you to give that to my friend Derek um, next week. Clara has become a debtor to Derek. She has something that she's been given that doesn't belong to her that's expected to be passed on. And while she holds it, and without pass, before she's passed on, she's a debtor, she's in debt because she's holding something that's not meant to be kept. That's how Paul described himself. So a steward, sum, to summarize, is a manager who's been given the gifts of time, talents, money to invest wisely. Donald Hens, remember what he said. People are not naturally disposed to giving, yet the life that we all prize, filled with joy and spiritual death, depth, not death, de depth, spiritual depth, is closely tied to giving generously and with thankful hearts. Now, many people want to be generous, but they can't because there's nothing left over. There's too much month at the end of the money. All of our incomes go um, on living and paying off debt. And God has grace for that. But that's not God's best, is it? God has grace for that and he understands and he wants us to get out of debt. And he wants us to become debt free. And, um, and I want to paint a picture and a vision for you, for your finances, you see. Because your financial health and personal health go hand in hand. And there's, if there's financial unhealth, that's okay. God's gracious with that. He's kind with that. He's loving. He's patient. But let's get a vision for a better financial health for my family, that we're saving, that I've, I'm able to gain all I can. Let's work hard and gain all I can. I'm able to save all I can, and I'm able to give all I can. Because it's as we give, the joy of giving, the, the, the beauty of giving, it's better to give than to receive. It's beautiful and many of us have got our hands tied because we would like to respond with generosity to appeals and needs, but we can't because we're so caught up in debt. Well, that's okay. But God wants to paint a vision of a brighter future for your financial health. You know what? It might take you two or three years to get out of debt, but at least you start. And there's practical tools and courses I want to make available to you over the next coming weeks to help you start on that journey. But let's get a picture of, of, of health. You see, the Good Samaritan, we're going to unpack next week, but I want to finish with this video clip, okay? The, the Good Samaritan gives us a perfect template for generosity when shown through a life of sacrificial generosity. The Good Samaritan gives us a beautiful picture because he's an example of a good steward. 
And he uses his gifts of time, talent, and treasure to serve the one in need. Now, two things stand out from the Good Samaritan's life. Number one, he puts aside his own agenda and he goes the extra mile. These are two qualities of stewards. They put aside their own agenda and they go the extra mile. Now, here's the story of a man who learned that a life of joy and fulfillment came from a life of radical generosity. I'm going to let you tell his own story and then we're going to close. We want to get the band back up. So I just want to close with this video clip. Just play that, that video clip. Thank you. And then we'll um, get the band back up and we're going to close. Thank you. Water. It's in our history. In our morning. And even in our dreams. It's in the sky, and the earth, and in us. Both angry and playful. And always there, like a spring just beneath our feet. Plants, animals, and people gathered around it like their lives depended on it, because they did. They still do. As you watch this, there's the same amount of water on Earth as there was when it was formed. It stays the same, and yet it is always changing. Solid, liquid, gas. And just like water, our lives can change forms too, and we can become something else entirely. My name is Scott Harrison. <laughs> Just listen. This is my wife, my son, and my one on the way. I lead an organization called Charity Water, and our mission is to bring clean water to everyone on the planet. I live in New York City now, but I didn't always. I grew up in suburbia, and this was my house. My dad was a businessman, and my mom was a writer. They loved each other, and they loved me. We were a happy family, until we weren't. When I was four years old, my mom collapsed on the bedroom floor. We'd just moved into a new house, and our house had a carbon monoxide gas leak, but none of us knew it until then. She didn't die that day, but her immune system did. She became allergic to everything. Perfume, the ink from books, radio waves. She wore strange masks all the time and was often connected to oxygen. The toxic gas destroyed her immune system and in a way, my childhood too. After the poisoning, our roles reversed and I began to take care of her. As the only child, I had to be a good one. I learned to cook, do laundry and take care of the house. I was a good Christian kid who played piano in church and wanted to be a doctor when I grew up to help sick people like her. Until I turned 18. Music was my escape, so I joined a band and moved to New York. Um, right about the time when the band broke up, I got involved in um, producing these like live music shows in the city. 
if I realized that you could actually get paid in New York City to drink alcohol for free. This job was called a nightclub promoter. So you just had to get beautiful people in the clubs. And if you got the right people in the clubs, you could charge guys $500 to buy a bottle of champagne that cost you 40. I moved from club to club to club, filling up the VIP section and flashing my Rolex to the club photographers. For almost 10 years after that, I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and was out drunk almost every night. I was into strip clubs, gambling, and just about every drug except heroin. On New Year's Eve, uh, we all went to Punta del Este. Uh, it's a kind of party town in Uruguay. We rented this incredible house with cooks, waiters, and magnums of expensive champagne. Although it looked glamorous on the outside, there was a long decline in happiness. And I remember just feeling so unhealthy about it all. The next day, the party was still going, but I wanted the music to stop. I realized I was spiritually bankrupt, I was emotionally bankrupt, I was certainly morally bankrupt. I tried to find my way back to a very lost faith. I wanted things to be different. I left nightlife, sold almost everything I owned, and decided to take one year off to try serving others instead of myself. I'm applying, I'm filling out these long applications for these very credible humanitarian organizations that have long histories. I put in the applications, and then I wait. And I guess I should not have been surprised, but I am denied by all of these organizations. They won't even let me volunteer because of my past. So they're like, what do you do again? <laughs> We're serious people. <laughs> Thankfully, one organization says, if you pay us $500 a month, you can volunteer with us. So I said, here are my credit card details. Where are you guys going? They were an amazing team of doctors and surgeons who traveled the world on a hospital ship. They specialized in removing facial tumors, and they were going to Liberia, one of the poorest countries in the world, and a country I'd never even heard of. I say, I'm gonna sign up and be your volunteer photojournalist. I'd always taken pretty good pictures and photos and love telling stories. Everything in my life changed. I decided in one fell swoop to kind of never smoke again, to never touch drugs again, you know, to never gamble again, to, you know, to swear off pornography and strip clubs and just, I needed to walk so far in the other direction. And I walked up this gangway and this became my new home. Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to see. Hi, my name is Scott. I think we may be able to help you. I met a man named Harris. He was suffocating to death with a benign tumor. I got to see Harris's transformation because of an amazing surgeon named Dr. Gary Parker. So we, we've got to get your blood nice and strong for an operation, huh? Dr. Gary had moved his entire family on the ship to volunteer for a short time. That was 29 years ago. He'd just never left. I'd never met anyone with that kind of dedication before. Very happy we can uh, schedule and he'll spend Christmas here. First, uh, first good Christmas in 13 years. <laughs> A couple weeks later, I got to take Harris back home to his village with an entirely new face, ready to start a new life. The uniform that's put on people when you have these terrible deformities is you're rubbish, you're worthless, 
you're spiritually cursed, you're, and when you can change the uniform, it's huge. And the person starts to imagine that they might not be rubbish after all. No one in our world is rubbish. There was one day when more than 5,000 sick people came to see our doctors. Some of them had walked for more than a month, but there were too many of them, and we just didn't have enough doctors. I remember holding my camera, crying. We had to turn thousands away. We were changing individual lives every day, but I wanted to do even more. I'm documenting these life-changing surgeries, but I started to spend more and more time out in the rural villages. And as I would travel around these villages, I would see the most shocking things. About 475 people living here. This is what they're drinking. You can see there's bugs crawling around in it. I'm sort of putting this together, saying, look, thousands of people are turning up sick, and the most basic need for health isn't even met. It wasn't okay. Kids shouldn't be drinking from scummy swamps or ponds or rivers. He came here to fetch water, yeah. and a crocodile fell into the river. And a crocodile snatched him. Disappeared everywhere. Not, not even a body was not even found. There were so many diseases caused by bad water. Cholera, dysentery, trachoma, bilharzia, things I'd never even heard of. On top of that, I found out people weren't just drinking this filthy water, they were breaking their backs to get it. Women and girls are usually the ones responsible, often walking for hours every day. As a result, many girls never make it through school. They trade in their education and dreams to carry 40-pound jerry cans so their families can have water. Dirty water is responsible for more death in the world than all forms of violence, including war. Even if it were a million people, this would be a crisis. But it's not one million. It's 663 million people that live on our planet right now without access to clean water. That's twice the population of the United States. Nearly one in 10 people worldwide. Behind those statistics were real lives people who were dying because they couldn't get clean water. And many of them were children. I began to become really interested in the, the water issue and who was doing something about this. How come more people weren't talking about water? I came back to New York City ready to go. So I started with a party. It's the only thing I knew how to do. I was a nightclub promoter. So I got someone to donate a club. I threw my 31st birthday party. I got 700 people to come out. I lured them with open bar. And I charged them 20 bucks at the door. And this time, instead of pocketing the $15,000, we took it immediately to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. We built three wells. We fixed three wells. And then 
we sent the photos and the GPS and the story back to those 700 people. This was a big deal. People could not believe that a charity would bother to report to them on a $20 gift and that something actually happened with the money that they could see, that they could connect with. 700 people proved that we could make a difference, even $20 at a time. This was the beginning of Charity Water. Okay, let's stand to our feet. Let's get the band back up. I might show part two of that, the, the, uh, the link for that full video. Let's stand to our feet. The, the link for that full video is on the Bible app event page, okay? Um, but he said this, I needed to walk so far in the opposite direction. I needed to walk so far in the opposite direction. And he, and he said that he had his first good Christmas in years on board a mercy ship with that sick man called Harris. As he was learning the power of generosity and living, uh, not living for self, but giving his life. He said, if the band could just start playing, I saw that I would never find happiness, purpose, or fulfillment in the things I was chasing. There would be, never be enough girls, never be enough money, and never be enough fame or status. He's now brought clean drinking water to 663 million people through his charity Water, which in 2015 raised over $35 million. That's from a man who was a nightclub promoter living drunk drugs for himself. The power of generosity. Just close our eyes. Dear Father, oh God, what a difference this world would be if your people were fully the people you intended us to be. And we pray and ask, oh God, that you would continue your transformational work in our lives to be a radical, generous people. That we would, like the Good Samaritan, put aside our own agenda and we would be willing to go the extra mile we thank you, Lord Jesus, for that little woman who just put two little coins into the offering and yet put way more than everybody else because she gave from all that she had. Thank you, Lord. It's not to do with how much we have, but what it costs us. So, Lord, we pray you would start a revolution of generosity in this place in our hearts, in my heart, Lord Jesus, that we would explode with generosity and the joy of generosity, that we are a people that are generous with our time, that we are a people that are generous with our talents, that we are a people that are generous with our treasure and our money, and that we are a people that are generous with the good news that you have given to us, the love and the kindness and the good news of new life, that we would be a radical, generous people, that we would spray everywhere the the fragrant aroma of Jesus Christ that this world would be a better place because you've put us here not to hide away but to transform you've called us Lord to have dominion and to rule and to take care Lord and to, to bless and to be a blessing Lord to our cities Lord and to our nations and to the world Lord that you would stir us up oh God Lord it would start small it would start with a pound coin it would start with uh, five minutes it would start with a phone call but Lord would you transform us would you come lord would you help us lord to live such holy lives set apart devoted lives for you lord that we are not hindering the transforming work of the generous holy spirit oh god we pray we ask in jesus name 
And today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, He died on the cross to save you. He was radically generous by giving His whole life. And He offers you new life today. And you can start by putting your faith, turning your life around. You can do what this man did to walk so far in the opposite direction because that's where transformation begins. It can't begin with a one degree turn or it can't be even begin with a 90 degree or 170. It's got to be in the radically opposite direction from living for self, for me, for my gain, my glory, my fame to his name, his glory and his fame. All out for him. That's where joy, that's where joy and fullness comes. As we lose our life, then we fill it. So congregation, help me. Come on, nice and loud. Dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for dying. I'm sorry for going my own way. I'm sorry for going Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Come into my life. And make me brand new. And make me brand new. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.